Hey guys, this is Mike Mahaffey, the old bastard BJJ guy, here for BJJ Mental Models. Back in my day, we had to walk uphill in the snow both ways to get to the academy just to learn some crappy technique from a random purple belt. You kids have it so easy, because now you can just subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium and get tons of great audio courses to learn new techniques, enhance your mindset, and entertain yourself. You can even get personalized rolling reviews from some of your favorite BJJ Mental Models coaches, including me. It's like having your own seminar, you spoiled little whippersnappers. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium right now, get off my lawn, and go train. Welcome to BJJ Mental Models episode 41. I'm Steve Kwan. Welcome everybody, I'm Matt Kwan. BJJ Mental Models is your guide to a conceptual and intelligent jiu-jitsu approach. Matt, what's up? Uh, just talking about crushing some small people, I think. Yeah, yeah. Today we're going to answer one of the most common questions we get, which is, how do you crush a small person? I am shocked that we get this question as much as we do, but we do. So we're going to do our best to answer it. I'm not a player, but I crush a lot. (laughs) (laughs) So a lot of what we talk about caters to the little man game. Neither Matt nor myself are huge. So of course, a lot of the jujitsu that we do is probably more tailored to smaller people. But that said, um, one of the things about jujitsu is when you are a smaller person, you may not be an expert at crushing people, but you often become an expert at receiving it. <laughs> yes. so, so the information that we share today will probably not be based so much upon firsthand experience at crushing people, but more on what works when people try to crush you and what doesn't. Yeah, like we're both about 5'8", or I think maybe I'm an inch taller than you. I'm like 160, 165, so... Not a lot of smaller people than me in the gym, but when I see uh, like a 5'4 dude walk into the gym, I'm like, yes, thank God, somebody smaller than me. You know what's interesting is I find these days the hardest roles for me are against smaller people. And I think it's because I spent so much of my time training against larger people and Mm -hmm. learning how to confront and defeat that kind of strategy that now when I fight a smaller person, it just feels foreign. I'm not Mm. used to a person who can move that quickly or get out of bad positions. And I find they're so quick at regarding or recovering bad positions or throwing on submissions quickly. That's really, when I get tapped out in the gym, it's usually by a really good small person. Yeah. If you're not big, you got to be good. Right. And I guess with uh, a smaller person having uh, shorter appendages, just smaller levers to work with. So I find joint locks can be harder to get and, uh, you know, they can do things that certain people can't do. I find they maintain knee elbow connection a lot better than people with really long levers or whatever. And yeah, just generally harder to deal with. Although you could say that also about big players as well. It really comes down to alignment and how you structure your guard. But um, I think generally smaller people are more flexible and a little bit tougher to separate the elbows from the knees. Someone asked us to talk about different body types in jiu-jitsu, and that would be an interesting conversation. But the thing I find is there is really no good answer to that. Every person has such a unique body type, and not just that, but a unique way of using their body. There are some people who are really, really big, and they're really good at playing a big guy game. But there are also some people who are really big and they're terrible at playing a big guy game. So true. So I find that often you can't just look at someone and say, oh, this is a big guy. He's going to play a big guy game. You know, you can never really know for yeah. sure. And uh, I mean, I, I'm reminded of the UFC where you see some guys like John Jones who are so good at exploiting the strengths of their body type. But then you see guys like Stefan Struve who are so terrible at it, right? Hey, don't talk shit. The sky <laughs> hey, I'm not. I mean, nothing against him, but you know, I he's, he's, he just... looks like a baby who's eight <laughs> feet tall. <laughs> he does look bizarre. Like he, he's got the head of a baby and the body of an ogre. He just looks so bizarre. Oh, God. Yeah. So anyway, on the topic, though, generally speaking, when we're talking about crushing small people, what we're basically talking about is when you come in with either a size or a strength advantage, Mm -hmm. how you use that to shut down a game that is based on speed or mobility or agility. Now, an important realization I came to is that 
size and strength are not the same thing and they're not always directly correlated. You know, you can have very, very small people who are unreal strong and you can also have gigantic people who are actually not that strong at all, even if they are muscular. You know, strength manifests in, in different ways. And from my standpoint, a strength advantage is something that you cannot really just eyeball someone to determine if they're going to be strong or not. A lot of the time you don't know until you begin the grip fight and then you realize. I mean, I trained with mm -hmm. a guy who probably is 20 pounds less than me. So he's really small and his grips are unbelievable. Like if he gets his grip on you, it's very, very hard to break. And even if you have a size advantage, that can really cause a lot of problems because mm -hmm. as we've talked about in earlier episodes, grips tend to dictate position. So even if someone is smaller than you, you, if they are able to dominate the grip fight, it's very hard to get your game off. Yeah, like I, fi I find, uh, like I mentioned before, it's a lot of it is alignment and positioning that helps. Uh, do I think that's the truest representation of of strength? It manifests in, in like uh, the positioning of your body and understanding how to be in good base. Like, uh, you know, a, a really big, strong dude without base is. Uh, He's just going to blow over, right? If you don't understand how to properly base, that's why jujitsu is not an, it's not really an attribute based sport. You know, you have to have the uh, understanding of the concepts. And generally when people big or small come and, and ask me, how, how do I get better? How do I get stronger? Usually what I say is, do you know what posture structure base is? And then, you know, if, if it, when you, you will get to a certain level where you do understand that and you're at a high level of grappling. And then now I think it's time to start really focusing on things like strength and conditioning. But very rarely I find strength and conditioning is is actually what dictates true, uh, quote, strength in, a, in just an average everyday role. Yeah. I think that alignment is a really powerful framework to hang everything else on top of. We've talked about this in the past, how if you're new to jujitsu, rather than trying to cram as many individual techniques into your head as possible, it is preferable to understand the framework that everything fits under. Mm -hmm. and, and in the case of the mechanics, we're talking about alignment. Once you understand that, every move and technique and body type question that comes up it's just something that you can hang on top of that framework and it ties everything back together so that it's easier to understand. So yeah. I do encourage that, you know, before you start worrying about how to beat up a bigger or stronger opponent or conversely a smaller and weaker opponent, start asking yourself, do I really understand alignment? And it can be difficult, admittedly, for a bigger person to get good at these concepts because they can often just hulk their way through training, at least at the lower levels. Yeah. Once you, I find once you get up to like purple and brown belt level, the advantages that come with strength become less dominant. Uh, but that said, if you, you have two people that are fighting and they're relatively equal in skill or experience level, that's when all of these other advantages start to play in right. your favor. And, you know, from my mind, strength and size are not actually the biggest advantages. I think that the most important advantage you can have is technique more than anything else. Having good technique, I think, trumps everything else. I would say second to that is mindset. You know, if you if you have the mindset of someone who really wants to win and wants to fight, that will almost always dominate someone who is really passive and isn't ready for that level of intensity. Mm -hmm. But going beyond that, I mean, I think I think even like cardio is more important than size, for example. I think someone who has, has a, a deeper gas tank is probably going to be able to win a fight over the long term. Um, but that said, you know, again, once you talk about relative experience levels, you're talking about two high caliber grapplers, things like strength and size start to come into play. And yeah. these these are not always things that are going to vary just, if, uh, you know, if you're at a different, a different weight class. Sometimes two people in the same weight class, just due to body type and due to strength, um, they might have different advantages in different areas. Yeah. And if you are a big guy, um, first of all, my, my, uh, my heart goes out to you because I know, well, I don't know from my own personal experience, but I must, I understand how it must be difficult to have everybody <laughs> almost like dread rolling with you. And, you know, if, if you're a big guy who's really controlled and technical, you probably don't have that problem so much, but I'm sure people are hesitant to ask you to roll. And I'm sure that you have to, you know, speaking to all the big people out there, I'm sure that you'll have to like let up a little bit and not use so much strength. So you're almost training yourself to not have your full potential until you see somebody else who's actually just as big as you and then you can go very hard. So I think it's important to have that mindfulness that like when you're a big person that you, you have to be able to turn that 
on and off that switch where you, you know, yes, I'm going to use my strength or, you know, no, I'm, I'm not going to use my strength. I'm just going to focus on technique. And I mean, in a way we have to do it too. Like if we're rolling with people who are a lower rank or a small, a smaller stature, stature, yeah. stature as well. I think that everyone who's grappling goes through kind of an intensity curve where when you first start off grappling, of course, you're going like a hundred percent all the time because you don't know better and you don't understand the risk of injury. And then as you get a bit of experience under your, your belt and you're kind of blue or purple belt level, you understand that there are benefits to toning it down because you don't want to hurt people, right? But then I think as you start to get the brown and black belt level, you realize that if you're always training at low intensity, you're not actually able to peak yourself and you're not able to really test yourself at the highest levels. And that growth really comes from the ability to push yourself beyond your limits. So I find that at kind of the brown and black belt level, you learn how to strategically turn up the dial in a way that is proper for the situation and also safe. Safety being the big thing. Like if I'm rolling with a black belt and they're going 100% with me, I know I'm not going to get hurt. Whereas if I'm rolling with a white belt, I have no such guarantee. I know I'm going to get hurt. (laughs) Yeah. So I think there's kind of that learning curve where people start off really intense and then they drop that intensity as they become aware of jujitsu etiquette and learning methods. But then eventually you learn to control that intensity and it becomes a weapon and not a liability to you. Yeah. Like that's funny. What you just described there is exactly what happened throughout my journey. I started uh, going probably far too hard and finishing every class absolutely exhausted and uh, over exerted I guess is the term just because uh, technique wasn't good and then as I got into blue and purple my technique got better I started becoming a little bit lazier uh, still competing but like I hadn't reached that point where I I really needed to turn it back on again because I thought I kind of bought into the whole well technique is everything thing I can be a counter fighter I can be I can just focus on technique and and still win and even though I was pretty successful uh, around the brown belt level, I realized the importance of things like strength and conditioning. And like you said, being able to turn it on when it's most necessary and then be able to turn it off when you need a rest mid match. So, uh, I found that that was in the brown and especially black belt levels. That's when I've sort of realized how to really turn it on and off during the match, um, and have, have that ability to step, step, a, a step away from a second and sort of actually look at what's happening in the match. But, didn't have that control at any other level, like purple and below. I, I didn't have that, that awareness during the match. So another, another thing I just wanted to share is just, uh, on an unrelated note is for competitors out there. I, I've, I've recently started refereeing and it's, it's helped me big time. Like in, in competitions, I feel so much more aware of what I, uh, of what I'm trying to do. It really makes your goals obvious because before I was just going in to do jujitsu and now, uh, I've ref three tournaments now and, um, you know, it's, it's a stressful job, but now I feel like I actually understand the rules. So I know where I can score and I know how it just increased my chances to make it to the next match. So that was just a little thing I wanted to throw in there and. I'm sure we could even talk about that as an episode sometime. Yeah, we've been talking about breaking down competition as a series of episodes or even a course or something, because I think there's so much information there that, and not just information, but learning how to apply that information. You know, jujitsu, I, I know everyone likes to think that jujitsu is a fight, but jujitsu is not a fight. It really is actually quite far from a fight. It is a sport, right? It's a combat sport. Um, and if you know the rules and you play to the rules, it's going to be, your, to your advantage, right? You need to know those rules if you are going to compete. Exactly. Yes, in a perfect world, it's great if jiu-jitsu makes you a total badass and you can win any fight anytime. But at the end of the day, you're participating in a sport. And if you go in ignorant of the rules, they're probably going to bite you eventually. Yeah. And that's what happened to me is I would just rely on, you know, being decent at jiu-jitsu and being able to do kind of what I wanted to. But then when you get to the higher levels, you realize that you can't do what you want to anymore. And so you need to have uh, advantages wherever you can get them. And I can, I can truly say that having an understanding of the points and just how matches are, are kind of how competitors play to the rules has really, uh, made, made a huge difference in my competition game. So I recommend for, for any competitor out there to at least study the points and, and try and referee a few tournaments. Yeah. We've talked in the past about how technique is probably the most important attribute that you can have, but it's not everything. And anyone who tells you that technique is everything is doing you a disservice. When you are sparring with someone who is equivalent to you or similar to you in skill, you need to have 
any other advantage at your disposal that you can, and you need to utilize that to its maximum. Those advantages can be better game planning, better cardio, better strength. It can even be a better understanding of the rules, right? If you go into a fight with a point strategy, you can still manage to defeat a, an opponent who is superior to you in almost every other way, right? If yeah. you have a, a plan to win uh, and a strategy for getting back on course when the plan fails, that's probably going to take you farther than the person who doesn't have that. So it's very important to understand that. Um, and I would say that in terms of advantages, you know, just like size and strength, understanding the rule set and having a strategy for maximizing points is is just as important as having like a physical advantage. Yeah, absolutely. If we're speaking in points tournaments, if it's sub only, it really doesn't matter. Well, it's the same, right? I mean, if it's sub only and someone is going in there and they're playing the same kind of game that they would play in a traditional jiu-jitsu tournament and the other person is diving for submissions left and right, that person, the latter person might be better off, right? It comes down to understanding the rule set with which you're operating under. This is true. Yeah. So tying all that back together, um, one one piece of advice that I have for larger people, there is a lot of big guy shaming in jiu-jitsu where big guys are told, don't use size, don't use strength. And as a result, I find that a lot of the big guys that I spar with, especially around the, from the, like the white through to the purple level, they kind of get the confidence beat out of them just verbally. And it gets to the point where when they're sparring with an, a smaller opponent, they won't even try. They'll just kind of sit there like a mountain. And that is not good for anybody. It's not good for you. And it's not good for your training partner because neither of you are learning and getting realistic resistance. Now, that said, you need to have control of your body and you need to know how to do things safely, which is why at the white belt level, I do generally encourage you to be very mindful of the strength advantage you have. But as you get more experienced, you need to understand that it's okay to use that strength advantage during sparring. Nobody tells the smaller guy, don't use speed, don't use agility, right? Yeah. No one tells point. No one tells the athletic guy, don't use cardio. That's an unfair physical advantage, right? If you have size or strength, the reality is most of your training partners are probably there because they want to learn how to beat someone who's bigger and stronger than them in a fight. And if you don't give them that realistic training, I mean, yeah, they might hate it if a big guy <laughs> dominates them, but over the long term, it's better for them to understand what that's really like. What we don't want is a situation where people train jujitsu and they get the same kind of false confidence that people get going to those self-defense seminars where, you know, they they train how to do groin and eye strikes for one day and they think that that's going to be enough to defend them on the street. The benefit to training with bigger and stronger people is you learn how dominant those advantages can be, but you also learn that even though it's hard to overcome them, you can overcome them with training. It's just not an overnight process. It's going to take years and years and years to get there. So I, I encourage again that for you bigger guys out there, be safe with your smaller opponents. But don't be afraid to smash. Yeah. And and also, you know, you can just because you're big doesn't mean you have to have a big guy game. Like I have a I have a I know exactly who you're gonna talk about right now. Do you? Who? Well, I was gonna talk about our special forces friend who plays like, No, I wasn't going to, but he's also a very yeah, good we, example. Yeah, we we have a, a friend who's in the special forces and he is like in unbelievable athletic condition and he's a lot he's a lot bigger than myself and Matt and he plays butterfly off the bottom all the time and he's really good at it so sometimes the body type can be deceptive yeah well he wasn't who I was thinking of but he is also a great example there's another guy in my school who's a purple belt who's about 210 pounds and he he basically tries to play like a little guy. Like he'll try and bear and bolo. He'll try and do crab ride. He'll do invert. And um, it's really helped him with our roles because he kind of knows what I'm going to try and do because he puts himself in my shoes and tries to adopt things from my game that a lot of big guys wouldn't really use like inversions and things like that. So, so as a result, he's more aware of the attacks that I'm trying to do. He can kind of, you know, read me a little bit better. He doesn't really fight like a big guy at all. So I, I think that that's kind of an important thing for a big guy is, you know, just because you're big doesn't mean you have to smash the hell out of somebody. It, you know, you can you can adopt any style you want. And I think the best thing is to just use what works for you and your body and then, uh, you know, discard what, what doesn't work. Absolutely. And from my own experience, I use a lot of techniques that are generally considered to be big guy techniques. You can never really know for sure what's going to work and what isn't going to work for you until you try it. So it's good to keep an open mind to these things. And you don't want to dismiss an idea just because people say, oh, that's not for your body type. That's a terrible mindset to have. 
Try it yourself. Give it an honest try and make that decision on your own rather than letting quote-unquote common sense dictate these decisions for you. Because you might be surprised what kind of weird and unorthodox techniques you can fit into your game. And a lot of the time, when you are fighting against someone who is equivalent to you in skill and experience, sometimes those unorthodox strategies are what makes the difference. Because you're going against what people's expectations dictate you should do. So mm-hmm. that can be an example of where you can actually get an unfair advantage just by going against the norm. Mm-hmm. Yep. So we've hopefully given you enough of a pep talk to justify crushing small people. Now I guess we can talk about how to do it. <laughs> um, I, so again, just to tie this all back, in my mind, when we talk about you know beating up little people, we're generally talking about either a size advantage or a strength advantage. And these are not always the same thing. I mean, presumably they're correlated, but just because you have one doesn't mean you have the other. Now, in my mind, strength means that you're probably going to have an easier time in the grip fight, which is a massive of advantage. Size means it's going to be harder for your opponent to move you, which is also a massive advantage, but in a, a very, very different way. And I think maybe first, Matt, we can talk about like a strength advantage, because a lot of the time that's the most frustrating thing. Now, for me, when I am dealing with someone who has a strength advantage, the one thing I notice it is very, very challenging for me to um, to dominate the grip fight. And I find, I find, for example, if I win a grip fight against a stronger person, it's relatively easy for them to recover before I'm able to do any serious damage. But if a stronger person wins the grip fight on me, they're past my guard in like half a second. Mm-hmm. It's just because they're so strong, right? Once they get the dominant grip, a lot of the time, you know, they don't even have to, to have the most beautiful pass on the world. They can just literally pick you up and move you into the direction you want. So... I think in my mind, you know, we've talked about how grips dictate position. For me, when you are on the top, winning that grip fight is ultra important. Um, Also, of course, when you're on the bottom, but your biggest strength is probably going to be winning that grip fight, especially if you do have really, really strong hands and really strong grips. I think from either perspective, whether you're big or small, you need you need to win the grip fight. You need to win the grip fight, and and. I I don't think that um, being big makes you better at grip fighting, but I think that, like you said, if you if you lose a grip fight to someone bigger, whether you're on top or bottom, the consequences are usually a lot more more uh, dire, right? Like if you're in someone's if someone's really big and really good at like an open guard, and they happen to to tie you up, it's going to be harder to dig yourself out, and even more difficult to keep your base against someone much bigger and stronger. And likewise, if you're in the bottom position and someone out grips you and you don't have any grips and they're, now they're ahead in tempo um you know it, like you said it's going to be harder to harder to prevent them from passing and then even harder to dig yourself out of the you know the recovery phase so yeah and to clarify grip fighting is important regardless of whether or not you have the strength advantage we've talked about this in the past that from my perspective grip fighting is really the single most important strategic thing that you can do to improve your game it should be your first and foremost priority but Definitely. if you are uh, having the strength advantage it is of the utmost importance that you do not let the little person shut down your grip game because really the the grip fighting is your strength once you get those grips you can do incredible things with them if you have the strength advantage so you need to be especially mindful of that when you're dealing with someone who is smaller than you i find if i was to invert the question as a smaller person how do I defeat a bigger person? My answer would be dominate the grip fight. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So as the big guy, you have to understand the little guy's game. And the reason why little people are often able to do what appears to be such effortless transitions from place to place and you can't stop them, usually it's because they beat you to the grips. Uh, good little people get very good at grip fighting. So the most important thing to understand is don't assume that just because you're stronger, you can allow your opponent to get grips on you and try to power your way through it. I, I have made this mistake before before, yeah. whereas the stronger person, my uh, my smaller opponent got grips, and I just thought, oh, whatever, I'm bigger and stronger, so I'll just ignore these and try to pass, and the consequences can be d- dire. You always want to win that grip fight, especially if you're the bigger person, because that's where a lot of your power comes from. Absolutely. Yeah. Whether you're on top or bottom, big or small, you got to win that grip fight. That, yeah. And like Steve said, that is one of the most foundational aspects to jujitsu, and definitely, I think too many people kind of start the... They start the guard already in the second phase where there there is no grip fighting. They kind of um, skip past the the grip fighting and training. And as a result, they have really shitty engagement phase concepts and, and mechanics. So 
really important to actually focus, especially if you're a competitor, you have to focus uh, heavily on the first phase of guard, which is the engagement phase. Yeah, if you guys didn't listen to the episodes we did quite a while back on the three phases of guard, I highly recommend doing so. It's very relevant for this discussion. So what Matt's talking about is how, you know, first and foremost, when you're going into someone's guard, the engagement phase where the grip fight is effectively determined, that is the first thing that needs to happen. And people often in their in their laziness or in their eagerness to pass, they skip that phase and just walk right into somebody's guard. So mm-hmm. don't ever do that against a smaller person because so many small guys specialize in trying to get underneath you. I, I would also counter here that um, Matt, when you do have the strength advantage, probably, especially if you're on top and you're in the other person's open guard, they're most likely going to try to either get underneath you or do something funky with your lapel. I find that most of the time that is the preferred little person strategy. So I think that if you're the, the stronger person, you don't really want to leave too much space under your legs where people can get under and go for a single X or X guard or a double leg or a single leg. You don't want to allow that to happen because that's often going to be the little person strategy. You generally want to prefer to keep that person in front of you where you can fight them directly. Mm-hmm. Cool. Matt, any other comments on strength in general? I mean, um, one thing I will say is uh, just as a competitor and someone who's coming off of a, a pretty bad knee injury, uh, strength training is, I think, a really important aspect to my training now. Uh, before, I never used to think so. I used to think that it was just all about technique, but um, it definitely definitely will just build a stronger vessel to do jiu-jitsu, which is your body, right? So it's very smart, I think, to to have an open mind when it comes to strength and conditioning. And if you talked to me three years ago, I would have totally been like, no, I don't do any of that. Just, just do jujitsu, right? Like Marcelo Garcia always says, just do jujitsu. But now I'm realizing how important it is now that I'm in my thirties and, you know, things are starting to kind of a few screws are coming loose here and, and things are, you know, breaking down there. It's, it's really important to just keep your body strong and, you know, strengthen all the little joints and, and, and things like that to prevent injury. So I think it's a huge thing that a lot of people are neglecting now. Yeah. You want to avoid labeling yourself as like, oh, I'm the big guy or I'm the small guy. And just assuming that your attributes are fixed and can never change. That's a really, really bad mindset for personal growth. And I think a problem that a lot of smaller people have is they think, oh, I'm, you know, I'm small, I'm weak. And so as a result, they kind of label themselves that way and they don't take action to try to make themselves stronger. Similarly with a lot of big guys, you know, I think they might think of themselves as a big guy. And so as a result, they avoid the things that could make them more effective such as working on endurance or working on um, a more dynamic game because they've kind of mentally labeled themselves as a certain type of person. And this is an example of where you're failing to have a growth mindset, right? Rather than looking at yourself as a collection of attributes that can never change, uh, kind of assume that every attribute you have is on a scale and anything can be improved. So yeah, maybe you're slow or maybe you have bad cardio Don't think of yourself as the guy who's slow or the girl who has bad cardio. Think of yourself as, here's where I'm at, but I can be better. And then try to focus on improving. So regardless of whether you're big or you're small, you never want to assume that your your bad attributes need to remain that way forever. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So uh, the other thing that can really be advantageous uh, when you have a an advantage over smaller people is size. And this is a lot different from strength, right? You're basically talking about just having more mass to the point where you're harder to move. And I find actually in some cases, the person may not actually be necessarily heavier. It might just be the way that their body is proportioned. You know, if, if someone has really, really thick arms and legs and relatively on the short side and they're kind of stocky, it can often feel like they're a lot bigger than they are because you just can't get a lot of leverage off of that arm or off of that leg. Yeah, like uh, Mikey Musumeki, who's one of the best uh, smaller jiu-jitsu fighters in the world right now, uh, multiple-time world champion. I think he's only like 24, too. Insane skill, uh, trains under Kyotera. He, um, his body type is, he's really famous for having a, a long torso, for a short guy, long torso, and super short legs and arms. So it actually makes it really difficult to manipulate levers on his body and get joint locks and things like that. So like, he has a very unique body type, whereas I'm actually kind of the opposite. I, my arms and legs are actually kind of long, but my torso is really short. So, you know, they, there's pros and cons to everything, I guess. But um, but yeah, it's just funny how different body types, some people have really strong grips and really strong fingers. Um, and some people have 
small hands but are quite large so their grip strength isn't very good it's you know i I think the main thing is to to know what what your body is capable of and when you're going against somebody you know if i know that i'm going against somebody who has like really unbreakable grips and a really strong open guard i'm probably going to try and pull guard on them if that's my you know if i'm building strategies yeah and another thing to understand is where certain moves are appropriate and where they're not. Now, I know a lot of people love to say things like, oh, triangles work on everybody. And if you're not able to get a triangle, you're just doing it wrong. Now, to some extent, that's probably true. But the reality is there are certain techniques that are just more advantageous depending on your body dimensions versus your opponents. And you would do well to understand what those are. Like the way that I like to think of it is when you're a smaller guy, you kind of often have to focus on putting all of your power against a single target, right? You can't really like break, you spread out your attack too broadly. So as an example, as a smaller person, if I'm going to guillotine someone, I'm almost always going to do it with just the neck. I'm probably not going to do the arm and guillotine because I'm probably going to be smaller. My arms are going to be shorter. I'm probably going to be weaker. And so that means that for me, if I try to do an arm and guillotine, my ability to generate leverage is compromised. Whereas if I focus on a single body part like the head, I can actually amplify that leverage like crazy. However, if you're a bigger person, then there are advantages to doing those kind of two-on-one attacks, right? Like if you're, if you are trying to triangle someone or, um, arm and guillotine someone or arm triangle someone, effectively you're attacking two body parts at once, right? You're generally speaking, you're attacking the head and the arm at once. Now, technically this is going to mean that you're putting less force against every each one of those targets, right? Your force is kind of spread out amongst two. So you're probably not going to be able to get the same kind of direct power as if you just like arm barred someone. But that said, you get a lot more control, right? The advantage to things like the head and arm triangle is even if the submission itself is a little bit less powerful than just a straight up choke, if you can pull it off, that seatbelt control is so powerful that you can really kind of suck the person's uh, energy out of them as they're fighting and you can prevent them from moving, right? When you're attacking a single target, like a, a guillotine or um, like an arm bar, a lot of the time, unless you're really good about wedging, the other person can can escape, right? Whereas if you have someone in like a Darce choke, man, it is hard to get out of that. Yeah. Even if the choke is not necessarily tight, that seatbelt control is so powerful. So my, one of my suggestions when you are fighting a smaller person is I would consider trying attacks that effectively rely on seatbelt control like that, like an arm triangle, a Darce, an anaconda, a triangle, uh, an arm in guillotine, because in addition to applying the submission, you also have the benefit of seatbelt control. Yeah, I've been loving the arm in guillotine lately, and I've realized that uh, it's just like the Kimura in that it's sort of a control system rather than just a submission as well. So... I've been using it so much to sweep and to get on top and to just like, you know, if, if if someone shoots on me, it's a good place to go if you get caught and then you can use it to get back on top. It's just a really useful tool. So definitely check out the uh, the Armin guillotine because it is is really good. I I actually find that it's um it's funny you say how you like to isolate just the head on a bigger opponent. I find I find I like to have the arm in there because I like to have something else to steer them with, but mm-hmm. I I do agree it, it can be harder to choke out someone who's bigger uh just because it's I yeah. I find, you know, they, it's a trade-off, right? One yeah. is not necessarily better than the other. When you are putting all of your power against one limb or against the neck by itself, you will get more power, but at the expense of control. Whereas if you have two things controlled at the same time, you'll probably get a bit less power, but the control is much greater. Mm. So the takeaway here is if you have a massive strength advantage, you're probably better off going for the whatever gives you more control because you already have the strength advantage, right? If you, I mean, if you're going to, if you have 50 pounds on me and you're going to guillotine me, it doesn't really matter if it's the tightest guillotine in the world or not, right? What is more important is that you can control me. So in that situation, I think probably it's prudent to focus on arm in control. And that's why I think you see so many big guys who are so good at uh, arm in tr- guillotines or triangle chokes or arm triangles or darces because that kind of head and arm control, if you're big, you still have power, but you also get the benefit of control. Now, I also find too personally, and this is a unrelated, when you're fighting a smaller person, passing is incredibly difficult because they're so good at making space, getting up onto their side, getting their knee in. Now, the strategy varies between gi and no gi, but I find that for me, 
if I really want to lock someone up and I'm trying to pass their guard in the gi, which is where I primarily train, what I almost always do against squirmy guys is I'll take their far lapel, like the where the underhook is, and I'll pass it behind their head. So yeah, you know I love where that you, you push it. I, I call it like the paralyzer grip because you basically can't move if someone does that to you. And you cross face the shit out of them. Exactly. Well, yeah. you always cross face the shit out of That's everyone. True. That's I do that all the time. You know, I do that for. At jiu-jitsu, I do that at work. I do that when I'm like going through the drive-thru. You always cross-face the shit out of people. When you're giving your daughter the milk bottle. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, cross-facing the baby. Wait, back to, to how to brush your baby's teeth, man. You cross-face like a two-year-old, they cannot get out of that. <laughs> Highly recommended technique. Yeah. So, but my, my in all seriousness, my point is that a lot of the time, if you want to immobilize that person... Taking advantage of the gi can help a lot. Uh, so what I like to do is I like to take that far lapel and kind of pass it around and under their head and just pull it in tight. And I, I think for me, when I'm fighting against someone who I know is really squirmy and they're not going to give me that guard pass, that's a strategy I like to employ. So like, uh, I, I think that's a great option, but even just to add on, uh, to add a, uh, like, a so something before that stage is I find when I'm going against a little guy, I have to get past their, um, their long range frame. So like, if I'm, yes. se- if I'm tied up in a, uh, like a spider guard or even, you know, like a, uh, even a knee shield, something where, where I can't get chest to chest, that is where I find that little guys are, um, they still have a good shot, but if you can get past that, those long range frames and then get like a chest to chest or start to isolate their, their arm, uh, sorry, shoulders and head, like a cross face or get an underhook and then pin their head and shoulders, that's where you're going to be able to, you know, that's when it becomes very difficult for a small person having a big person on top of it. And that's essentially where you get the, uh, the lapel control that you just described. So, um, I think when I'm going to, if I'm going against someone really small or if I'm a big guy, uh, going against a smaller guy, one of the biggest things I have to do is I have to dominate the grip fight and get to that phase of guard where they're basically flattened and, uh, you know, I have that, that head and shoulders control. Yeah. I find that when you're fighting against a smaller person with really good hip mobility, sometimes it feels like you're wrestling an octopus. Like these, you know, you think you're past their legs and then suddenly their legs are back in play again. And you're asking yourself, how did this happen? Where did those legs come from? Uh, to your point, squishing the person so that they have their shoulders, both shoulders on the mat, and you have chest-to-chest contact, that's really the gold standard against a smaller person. I would add on to that, that a mistake a lot of larger people make is they try to rely solely on their size and their weight to pin the person to the floor. Yeah, that, without proper base and force vector. Or, or without responding to the motion of the person on the bottom. You know, we've... When you're when you're a more junior person, it is it feels very effective to have someone just pancake on top of you, right? It feels like you're stuck under a truck. But once you get relatively good at jujitsu, it actually becomes pretty easy to displace someone who's just being heavy. We talked in the past about um, kind of like how if you're smaller, you don't want to be a, uh, a stable platform for the op- opponent to sit on top of. You always want to be shuffling around and you never want to let them truly get their base. That's the winning strategy for a little guy on the bottom, right? If you just sit there and you let the person settle like concrete on top of you, yeah, you're never going to get out. Yeah. But if you're constantly making small micro transitions and you never truly settle down, it doesn't matter how big the guy is on top. They will, you will eventually get out. So. I find that the mistake that a lot of big guys make is they try to go splat on top of the little person and then the little person is shuffling around and they're doing micro transitions and the big guy just tries to go splat harder. <laughs> you know, that doesn't, that does not work. If the, if the person on the bottom is shifting or shifting to the point where you do not have proper base and you cannot settle your weight on them, you have to respond to that movement with movement of your own. You can't just sit there and try to quote unquote be heavy. Like if the person is actively getting out and actively hip escaping, you need to either move to north south or go to 180 and take side control on the other side or go to neon belly. You have to do something. You cannot make the standard big guy mistake of just sitting there and assuming that your weight will support them. Like that, that isn't going to happen. If the person on the bottom is good enough that they know to stay in motion, they will eventually get out. Yeah, and and it's not for every small guy, but um, a, a very common theme for small guys uh, with their guard retention is the ability to invert really well. So I feel like it's worth mentioning how to shut down inversions and things like that. Um, 
Is there a, like a DVD that we could buy <laughs> if we wanted to learn how to do that? You could. Uh, <laughs> you could get the Modern Jiu-Jitsu DVD by myself and Stefan Casting, which has a bunch of inversions and how to deal with inverted opponents and all that. But but also, uh, I was going to actually plug Gordon Ryan's DVD. His guard passing DVD is really good. And he talks about how to defeat um, inverted opponents a lot. And one of the things he says is just controlling the ends of their legs and basically fixing them to the ground so that they're fixed in an inverted position. Um, because a, a main feature of this if you can get their feet fixed to the ground is you have back exposure right so from there we can look to to actually gain control of the body and and pass through the legs so this that's one of the things against a really strong inverted based guard uh, guard games um to be able to control the ends of the legs and kind of force the opponent to invert rather than give them the choice to invert and if you do that you're basically breaking their posture by bending them upside down and then by then you can you can sort of come up with a bunch of different options so that's kind of my if someone's really good at inverting and they're causing you a lot of trouble definitely just controlling whether they're wearing pants or just they have uh you know it's nogi controlling the ends of the levers and and trying to pin them to the ground yeah that's really good advice because the problem with people who invert is when you're inverting you are changing the position so dynamically and so often that it's very hard as the victim <laughs> to to know where you're going to wind up right like you can you can feel like you're fine in one situation and then have your you know have the person wrapped around your leg in the next situation so i find that when someone's trying to do that yeah you want to you want to get back and you want to grab their legs and staple them to the floor because that way they can't rotate in and take one of your legs which is probably yeah. what they're trying to do um if it's too late to do that if you're in too close and you can't get their legs and staple them to the floor i find that what works well is to actually go deeper into go deeper in so like if the person is trying to invert under me instead of trying to get out and pull away i'll throw my head inside and the rest of my body inside the inversion between their legs and that kind of results in you stapling to them to the floor yeah. and sometimes you want to bright inside controller in north south yeah and 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 also like as a bigger person, I think it's it's important to just constantly know how to to move the pressure forward. It doesn't have to be super fast. Like, in fact, a lot of big guys aren't super fast. But just to know how to how to uh, like grind your opponent down. If they're a small player that has a lot of movement, you want to kind of slow them down and then not not really. If you can, the way that I deal with smaller guys is I try to just consistently increase pressure even if it's at a slow pace um and and wear them down and find those uh what cobrina calls pit stops right so like um i know that a lot of the alliance jiu-jitsu system they, they talk a lot about pit stops and how you can basically get into these positions where you force your opponent to to mentally quit and then they basically want you to pass their guard because they're in such an uncomfortable position and uh, a situation where you're pinning uh, an inverted player's feet to the ground is is no different it's pretty much the exact same idea and then um yeah just just using that just using two levers to their hip to control their torso and then moving on from there whatever you're gonna do yeah. knowing me i'd probably do some stupid upside down shit but it would look cool yeah <laughs> I would look like a boss. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, on the topic of breaking the person's will to fight, this is always a good strategy when you're a bigger guy and you're playing a pressure-based game. I find that, you know, especially once you can start getting to side control and getting to mount, a lot of the time it's very challenging to hold a little person in that position. And you definitely want to focus on trying to take away their will to fight. So. I would suggest don't underestimate the power of, you know, just a really strong cross face or even <laughs> especially if you're on mount, like just putting your chest on their face oh, so God. they can't breathe. I mean, this especially is a- if you're not wearing a rash guard <laughs> and you're greasy and, <laughs> yeah. and, and hairy. But it's it's a very valid strategy. I mean, I, I do this a lot to, to little people as well, or even actually to people my own size. You can take a lot of fight out of someone just by sitting in mount and kind of gradually like a boa constrictor yeah. taking away their oxygen if you've got the size advantage, that's such a powerful strategy. And it's not dirty at all. Like it's, well, unless you're not wearing a rash guard and you just, just have like sweaty chest in their face. It's I guess kind of dirty. I guess technically it's dirty, but like from a technique standpoint, it, it's not. Um, I The other thing too is that you can actually do a lot of that from, uh, you know, traditional judo positions like kesagatame. I, yeah. I think kesagatame is a highly underrated position in jiu-jitsu. People always crap on it because technically, yes, you can sweep or you can reverse or you can take the back. But honestly, you can do that from a lot of positions. If you train that position, like anything else you learn to play it relatively safely and as a big guy 
Kesakatame is something you should definitely explore because there are a lot of very powerful, very hard to defend submissions from very that position. Very mean submissions. <laughs> like, uh, what was it, Barnett on Lister? The, oh, yeah, the, the, the Barnett pressure. lock where he basically just, he just like, basically just pulled his chin into his chest and crushed yeah. his chest, right? You probably won't make a lot of friends in the training room <laughs> if you do that. Well, but but even if you don't want to do that, like, there's a lot of arm locks you can do from there. There's, there's even chokes you can do from there that do not involve, like, body compression. You can totally Ezekiel someone from there, even in no right it's so hard to defend when you've got your head and your arm isolated like that so mm-hmm. kesakatame is another example of where you isolate your opponent's head and arm and that seatbelt control especially if you're strong can make it really hard for the person to get out yeah yeah for sure cool any other bully tactics that you want to share matt as a bigger person yes <laughs> Uh, well, like I said, I think, I think if you can just pace, like, cause I think a lot of bigger guys, one of the main things they struggle with is, uh, being able to maintain a high pace. So I think the, one of the best approaches a bigger person can have is to set a pace that they can follow the whole role. And like I said, just have that constant grinding pressure coming forward. Even if it's like a, a a slow tempo, he's still just increasing the pressure and kind of just cornering their opponent, um, either separating their knees from their elbows. That's one of the big things too, is against like, uh, like if you watch how the Mayao brothers play their, their knees are always connected to their torso. They're always keep, uh, they always keep that knee elbow connection and separating their limbs like that and cutting them in half is one of the, the biggest things you can do. But, um, even, even now, like I talk about passing with pressure only as a black belt, am I actually playing with like actual pressure passing now pretty much all up until Brown belt. I was only working on movement based passing. And now I feel like I'm finally getting back to sort of the old school, uh, pressure passing style. So, you know, I think the most important thing is to be able to, to mix up loose and tight passing and, and, you know, flow flow back and forth between them but definitely as a big person being able to take advantage of your size you want to get past your opponent's grips get past their frames and then get that chest to chest so you can start to really utilize your size you know it's so funny you mentioned that because up until brown belt like what i was really trying to do was focus on um more movement based passing like x passing or leg drags but now kind of my go-to is like just a straight up stack pass or maybe even an over under and like i'm not a big guy but i think there is a thing where once you get to a certain point, you start to focus less on like what's going to be effective and more on like what's going to be efficient. Like how do I, how do yeah. I do moves that are both so effect- true? How do I do moves that will work, but also require less energy and put myself at less risk? Um, and I think that's why you see, start to see all of these like more experienced older guys gravitating towards a pressure pass game. But you had a good point there, Matt, about the elbow knee connection. Um, little guys especially love the elbow knee connection because if they, if you can maintain an elbow knee connection, it's very hard to get your guard passed. So as a bigger guy, if you are fighting someone who's doing this, you need to be mindful of that and you need to pry their elbow and their knee apart from each other. Because as long as they can make that connection, very, very hard to actually pass their guard. They're just going to recover every single time. Mm -hmm. Um, Another closing thought, Matt, and this is something that you mentioned in previous episodes, which I think really is important here for big guys. Um, A lot of big guys should probably focus on trying to do less. I think that a mistake a lot of big guys make is they try to kind of move fast and match intensity of the other person. But the problem is if you're moving a lot, you're leaving a lot of openings. Mm -hmm. Um, If you are really, really big and you have a lot of mass and you're hard to move – Moving less is going to be to your benefit because it doesn't give the little guy any openings, right? No, if, you're, if, you're so right with that. Yeah, if a little guy can get a good grip on your arm or your leg, if they know what they're doing, that's going to be enough leverage that they can eventually topple you. So if you just kind of sit there like a boulder and you just don't move, if your if your movement is really slow and methodical, it's going to frustrate the little person. And yeah, they can bounce around and run around you a hundred times, but at the end of the day. If you are controlled enough that you are not giving them a a lever, then it's going to be very hard for them to get off any sort of offense on you. Whereas if you're in a big aggressive push to try to pass the guard and to try to match speed with speed, you're probably going to leave an arm or a leg dangling somewhere and that is going to be your Achilles heel. Yeah, one of my students, he's like, 250 260 like just a huge guy and actually really good jiu-jitsu really good leg locks but i i was still you know this is he hasn't been in for a few months now just because of work but he would come in and we'd have these great leg lock battles and most of the time you know he'd catch me but i'd i'd usually catch him or i'd come up on top and once i pass his guard he'd have a really hard time getting his guard back 
Um, and I just said, Hey man, like, you know, if you just did a little bit less, like if you just give me less energy and are more uh, frugal with your output, I think you're going to, it's going to be a lot harder to deal with you. And so as a result, he just now, instead of trying to submit me, he focused his game plan on just staying on top Mm -hmm. and God, I wish I didn't say anything because it's fucking way worse. (laughs) It's way worse to deal with a big guy who's strong. Who's just like, wait a minute. I can just hang out here. Wait a minute. I don't have to move. Yeah, I can just (laughs) use my pressure and not give him anything and save energy. And as a result, it's way harder for, like you said, it creates openings, right? So, yeah. yeah. yeah, I (laughs) I used to train with two guys who were both, you know, they're a lot more junior than me, but not that junior. And they, but they both have like 60 pounds on me. And it used to be that every single time I rolled with them, I would get underneath them, single leg X, sweep them every single time. And then eventually they kind of realized, you know, you don't need to stand up and be intense and try to run around the person you can just sit there and hunker down and be slow and methodical and now i can never sweep these guys right it's they're playing to their strengths which is so important to understand so if you are fighting someone who's a lot smaller than you don't feel pressured to play the speed game with them you know be slow be methodical and be frugal with your motion because what you want to avoid doing is giving them a lever that they can control especially the leg in my opinion yeah cool So just recapping what we talked about today, the mental models we discussed. um, First of all, grips dictating position. Grips are always the first thing that you should focus on. But if you are a stronger person, you're probably going to be able to do more damage with with a good set of grips. Additionally... If you're stronger, the way that the little guy is going to beat you is by winning the grip fight. So that's got to be your first focus is making sure that you understand that. Second, we talked about the theory of alignment. Um, This is the posture structure base framework that really every mechanical motion in jujitsu is related to. Rather than trying to memorize individual techniques, make sure to understand this framework first. It tells you the why behind jujitsu, why you do the movements you do, and everything else that you learn is going to hang off of that framework. We talked about doing what works, meaning don't avoid a technique just because people say, oh, that's not for your body type or, oh, that's a big guy move. That's a little guy move. Try everything. And if it works for you, it works. And that's really the only thing that matters. We talked about the different phases of guard. There's three phases to uh, to playing guard. There is the engagement phase, which is where you are effectively dom- jockeying for grip control. There's the maintenance phase, which is what people generally think of when we talk about playing guard, where you're in someone's guard. And then there is the recovery or retention phase, where you are about to pass, you've got past the legs, and now the other person is trying to recover guard before you settle into position. We talked about a growth mindset, which means don't just assign labels to yourself like, oh, I'm small, I'm weak, I'm big, I'm heavy. Everything about you is an attribute that you can get better at. So don't put these restrictive labels on you that prevent you from doing things like strength training to get better than you currently are. We talked about isolating a single target. So if you're a smaller person, you might prefer to do submissions on one arm at a time or just the neck, just because it allows you to maximize leverage. But if you're a bigger person, sometimes head and arm techniques work better because you get extra control out of those. We talked about shifting platforms, meaning that if you're stuck on the bottom, especially against a bigger guy, don't stop moving. You want to be making constant small movements so that your opponent can never settle their base. What this means for the guy on top is if you want to settle down a smaller person, you need to pin their shoulders to the mat and go chest to chest so that they cannot make those small movements. We talked... One of the main things forward shrimps are. (laughs) Like, I think a lot of people that have struggle with guard retention at the lower levels, if they just used things like forward shrimps, they'd be in, they'd be way, it'd be way easier for them to shift their, their shift platforms, as, as we like to say. So definitely thinking about how your feet keep you in base so you can stay mobile with your hips. If you're a little guy on the bottom. Definitely yep. one of the main things you got to think about. Yep. Uh, we talked about micro transitions, meaning the kind of small movements between movements. This is especially important if you're the guy on the bottom because you're always trying to create little spaces um, and little opportunities to escape. So again, if you're the guy on top, what you want to do is you want to shut those down, usually by pinning both cho- of your opponent's shoulders to the floor and then by putting your chest to their chest. And we talked about the elbow knee connection. So one of the hardest ways to pass uh, to, to make your guard, sorry, one of the easiest ways to make your guard impassable is to keep your elbows and your knees tight together. So as the guy on top trying to use their size or strength to pass, you need to make sure that you break your opponent's elbow knee connection before you actually pass. Otherwise, you'll find they're probably just recovering every single time. 
You know, one of my favorite things to say to a big guy is, after all, you're really strong. <laughs> it's like I, one of the most uh, <laughs> underhanded compliments you can give a big guy in jiu-jitsu. You should just go all the way with that and be like, wow, you really just don't need technique, do you? <laughs> <laughs> Basically is what it says. So, Matt, I got a question. Yeah. So, we were asked, what are the pros and cons of being patient versus being aggressive for regarding and or escaping? So, in other words, you're the guy on the bottom. Like, let's say you're stuck on side control. Mm -hmm. What are the pros and cons of being patient in your escape versus being aggressive in your escape? Uh, cons, you if you're too patient, your partner is going to settle in and then you, you're essentially allowing yourself to be falling into a deeper hole. Um, and obviously, in a tournament format, you're going to get points scored against you. But I think Leo Vieira said his strategy is if he gets his guard passed, he basically tries to escape for like 10 seconds. And if he can't escape for 10 seconds, he basically accepts the pass and then he re, re sort of tries to recover and, and reset his frames. And then, you know, he'll prepare to mount for another explosion, another escape. So I, I usually, uh, especially when I'm teaching kids, try and tell them just never stop moving because it's so easy at a lower level to just give up. Um, and, and it really takes years to instill that like never die attitude. So I think being patient on the bottom is required if your opponent can get to that point where they settle in but being aggressive usually if i get my guard pass at least for 10 seconds i'm going to try and recover and then you know at, at a certain point you you really start to burn a lot of energy escaping and, and it's it it sort of makes sense to just sit tight for a second and start thinking about your next move because sometimes you know that's how you can really exhaust yourself is if if your partner can just stay ahead of the defense the whole time and then you're just like trying desperately to get back into some kind of a guard and you can't uh it's really demoralizing so yeah well that's what they the big guys especially want to do is they want you as the person on the bottom to burn your energy out yeah so there's kind of a something you have to bear in mind when you're the guy on the bottom here either you are attempting to regard or you're attempting to escape now now first and foremost the amount of time left on the clock is very relevant. <laughs> you know, if if there's five seconds left, that's different from if there's two minutes left. So obviously, if you run out the clock, you need to use whatever gas you have left in the tank to try to get out of there right away because there's no consequence to burning yourself out. There's only risk to burning your, to, uh, to staying where you are. Now, on the other hand, the way that I like to think of this, uh, the most important thing when you are trying to recover from a bad position is not to burn out your energy. So if you are trying to muscle your way out of a bad position on the bottom, then that's a bad strategy in almost all situations except where you're, you're running out the clock, right? Mm. The reality is against good guys, a lot of the time that doesn't work. Um, and if it fails, you might be cooked for the rest of the fight because you don't have any energy left. However... I generally like to think that when I am on a bad position, I just don't stop moving. Uh, even, yeah. even if I do not actively have a window for escape, I just never stop moving. Now, that does not mean I'm burning tons of energy and I'm trying to bench press the guy. It yeah. just means I'm making small wiggling movements to adjust the angle. You can do this without burning energy, even yeah. if a really, really heavy guy is sitting on top of you. Just tiny little shrimps forward and backward to make sure that your opponent can never fully settle their weight on top of you, that's how you create the openings that are needed to escape against a good opponent. So mm -hmm. the way that my mind works when I get past and I'm on the bottom, sometimes you get tempted to just settle down and just stop and, and wait and look for an opening. But I try to catch myself when I when I realize I'm doing that. And I, I try to say to myself, well, I'm just going to not stop moving. That doesn't mean I'm burning energy. It just means I'm shuffling slightly from side to side so that my opponent can never fully get comfortable in that position. And eventually there's going to be an opening that I can use to escape. So um, I would say that the the cons of um, to, to being aggressive is you're going to burn out your energy, but you can keep moving without being aggressive. I don't, yeah. I don't think you want to necessarily be aggressive when yeah. you're the guy on the bottom, unless there's five seconds on the clock. I was going to say like define aggressive. Like, yeah, does I, that mean that you're just not stop moving or does that mean you're like spazzing and like really drastically bridging because I find that uh, the majority of my regarding and escaping has very little to do with like big movements unless I'm completely immobilized and I can't move then you need 
you know, a little bit bigger movements now and then, but like very rarely do I use giant movements to escape bad positions. Yeah, I'm interpreting in the context of this question, aggressive to mean like using spazziness and strength. And I again, I think the only time to do that is if you've got five seconds on the clock and losing energy is not a concern. Uh, but generally speaking, I would say focus less on burning energy and muscling from the bottom and more on just continuing to move. If you stop moving, it's going to get very challenging to escape. So just make sure that you are always moving as the guy on the bottom and you never let the person on top settle in and get their base. Yeah, and not just always moving, but simultaneously just replenishing your frames. That's kind of, I think a big mistake people try and do is they try and like, uh, they try and force the the space between themselves and their partner by using like movements like bench press movements and things like that. When all you really need to do is create knee elbow connection. You don't really need to like push your opponent far away from you. You just need to manage the distance and replace frames. So that's kind of one of the game changing details that I had for guard when I was when I was learning about like concepts like frames and posture structure base all these things is just using the guard as a distance management tool and uh yeah just looking to replace your frames there. Yeah, if you're trying to escape while your opponent is crushing your face with their shoulder, that's probably not the right order of operations. You probably need to deal with that um, that shoulder in your face first. And that's where getting your frames comes into play. Uh, that is definitely the first thing that you want to do, especially when you're stuck inside control. Mm-hmm. Cool. So, Matt, you want to plug anything? Uh, oh, yeah. My uh, professor, Rob, actually, I guess this will last week released the uh what is it called the submission i the think submission it's called the submission formula, formula. with stefan casting rob bernacki and uh stefan casting i believe he's going over finishing mechanics if i'm not mistaken it's going to be available on grapple arts so uh that's rob bernacki of bjjconcepts.net is the name of the online academy you can also follow him on instagram at bjjconcepts uh and definitely uh check it out uh, I'm th- i think it's going to help a lot of people f- uh turn up their submission finishing rate and uh yeah i can't wait to see it yeah i think it's a great addition to the family the core formula dvd series we've talked about a lot in the past i have it on my iphone i think it's great so i think the submission formula series is a good addition to that as well if you liked rob's other stuff i would definitely recommend giving it a shot in terms of bjj mental models of course find us on facebook and on instagram there's a lot of good stuff going on there you can also buy our merch we've got t-shirts and patches on bjjmentalmodels.com slash store you can sign up to our mailing list at bjjmentalmodels.com slash join there's a lot more detailed information that we send out on uh, a few times a week and of course on top of that if you want to learn more about all of these mental models that we talk about on the show we maintain a full database of them at our website bjj mentalmodels.com so matt i think that's it for another good episode thanks again yeah thanks guys and please keep the comments and questions coming oh yeah and uh if you want to have some awesome bjj mental models gear please check out our store at bjjmentalmodels.com slash store i already plugged that oh god hey it's we important can, to plug it twice if we, you, if you we can cut that out no we're not going to cut it out plugging okay. it twice is better than once all right all right take care guys all right see you guys paint <laughs>